Now, as we come into the text this morning, what we find is the continuing message, the continuing exhortation from Peter that this group of hearers are members of the household of faith, that they are the people of God. And Peter is trying to emphasize this for his hearers because as we begin the book, remember, Peter is writing to a group of Gentiles, a group of churches who are discouraged. They're maybe feeling oppressed. They're maybe feeling persecuted. They're experiencing some hardships some difficulties. And Peter's really writing to remind them that they are a part of the family of God. As you begin the book, we read in the very first chapter, in the very first verse, Peter writes to the elect exiles of the dispersion. And then he names some cities, Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia. He, he gives us this list, this group of cities where there are many churches that are gathered together, Christians that exist in these cities, and, and this letter would go to each of them. But Peter writes to them as a collective. He writes to them as one cohesive unit. He says, to the elect exiles of the dispersion. Now, what Peter is doing here, as we've said in the past, is this. He is lumping them together. He is giving them a common identity as Israel would have been given this identity. The people of God. Peter is doing this. I mean, they weren't under an actual exile. They weren't experiencing this physical exile. They were just scattered, churches scattered, but all members a part of the household of faith. But Peter calls them this this collection of people, these elect exiles. And he says that this group has been brought into relationship with God according to God's foreknowledge. They have been brought in and sanctified by his spirit for the purpose of obedience to Christ. They've been brought in by the sprinkling with his blood. There are these many ways that Peter has sought to emphasize that they are a part of the family of God. More than that, he goes on into uh, the, the um, next verses of chapter 1, where he says that this group of people, these Christians, you and I, are ones who are waiting to receive an inheritance that is incorruptible, unperishing, that there are uh, inheritances that you and I might look to upon the earth, but things that will have an end, that will come to a place where they will rust and break down, that they will be broken. But, but this group, they have an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, that is being kept for them. And this is what you and I wait for. Peter has been making this argument again and again and again. And as we came to the text last week, looking at chapter 2, he has uh, rooted this by, he has given us this this formation, this understanding in terms of uh, this masonry terminology, this, this craftsmanship, stonework. He says that there is primarily a cornerstone. There's a cornerstone that is being laid, that is the foundation of the building, that is the stone by which everything else finds its place in the building. That relates to. He says that there's a cornerstone that is being laid that is God's doing, but in the sight of man appears to be foolishness. That appears to be something that the builders wanted to reject. But it has become the most prominent, the principle, the cornerstone. And then Peter turns and says, but you, Christians, you and I are living stones. There is a a a prominent chief stone, but we are living stones. 
ourselves. We are a part of this house being built up into a holy structure that is God's dwelling place. Now, he does this so that we might understand how we relate to God on the basis of our relationship to the cornerstone. But beyond that, it helps us understand this, that no Christian can be individual. You can't be a living stone on your own. You're only a living stone in how you relate to the rest of the stones, how you relate to the chief cornerstone. You can only find your proper place in the building. You can only properly support and and hold up the structure when you are connected to others. A living stone on its own is, is not useful. But together, they form the spiritual structure that is said to be the dwelling place of God, this, this spiritual house. We're told here that this group is a holy priesthood, and its purpose is to offer spiritual sacrifices that are acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. There is this work that the people of God are supposed to be accomplishing as they relate to God, as they are in relationship with God, and these sacrifices are spiritual in nature. Now, he comes down to our text this morning to give us a little bit more insight, to to emphasize what exactly uh, our purpose is. And so we read, coming into verse 9, this. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Peter's emphasis as he comes to the text as he transitions into this section, is this. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood. Peter has taken this group of people who feel as though they are on the outside, who are wondering about their position, who are wondering how they relate to God, who are wondering how they relate to each other, and he gives them such strong terminology that emphasizes their election that they are chosen, that they are part of the family of God, that they are united in Christ. This is what we understand as we come to this. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood. What gives us our identity is how we relate to Christ, who Christ is. It's not our color. It's not our culture. It's not the way that we look. It's not the things that we celebrate, but it is our election that we are belonging to Christ, that he has chosen us, that we are his, that we belong to him. This is an important highlight for us. I want, to, I want to stop here and, and just think about this for a moment to, to, to touch on this and to give us some framework in how we should understand this. Maybe in some of your Bibles, you might read and it might say, like, we are a special generation or a chosen generation, or it might say something similar. There's, there's different words that have been used there, um, you know, over the years as translators, uh, you know, kind of remark upon what, what this means. But I think 
the, the translators here in, in flipping it to be a chosen race, they got it right. You'll see more so as we make our way through the, the passage. But it's an interesting selection, an interesting translation here to use the word race. To use the word that would be descriptive of the other races. Here you could perhaps also substitute, uh, well, I, I guess some of it's also bound up into being a holy nation. Uh, the ethnicities, you know, today in, in our common vernacular, you, you can talk about race or you can talk about ethnicity. And it's like, oh, some of these are constructs. And, you know, everyone's kind of got an opinion on this sort of thing. But here, here is, is what the emphasis is is that there is a new, completely new group of people who are chosen by God, who belong to him, much as uh, is the same in his selection of Israel. The scriptures tell us that Israel was selected to be his people, not because they were the mightiest or the most in number, but because they were the weakest because they were the worst off, that they, that they were the most vulnerable people. And there it was that God said, okay, well, you know, no one's really going to be able to say, of course you were successful because like you guys had a huge army and you had all these resources. The Lord took uh, the worst of the worst and said, okay, you know, you're going to be my people. Here, likewise, we are being selected we are being made up to be God's family. And it's described here as a chosen race. The identity that we find in Christ is what brings us together. It is the primary identity and it is, supersedes every other identity that you have. Every other identity. If you find yourself as a mother, a father, if you find yourself as a sister, a brother, if you find yourself as relating to someone as a grandchild, if you find yourself relating uh, prominently on the basis of your country's, uh, your, your, your original country, or, or maybe your, your historical roots of your family, this identity in Christ supersedes all other identities and comes before everything else. Now, as we think about this, of course, we say, well, you know, there are, if we look at the heavenlies, if we look at the book of Revelation, we see that all the nations are gathered, every tongue and tribe, and they're from all over. But the description that we find there is that there is a new, that people look different and they have different things, but all of the cultural markers that belong to those people end up going away in the heavenly realm. You look different, you come from different backgrounds, but the common uniting thing is that you are united in Christ. That you are worshiping Christ together and enjoying him together. That you are experiencing this fullness of joy together with people who look differently and come from different backgrounds, but there aren't this celebration of other things that are happening there. It's a, it's a celebration of Christ of who he is and what he's accomplished. And so in making this, this, this claim, it, it becomes to be a bit of a scandalous uh, sort of claim, a hard claim, because it really confronts us with the loss of identity that we would maybe be tend to grasp onto. 
that you might be like, oh, well, you know, I feel really safe and secure in my position in society. Or maybe you feel vulnerable in your position in society. Whatever you feel, that's going to, to end up fading away as your primary identity is in Christ. And that all will be laid bare before Christ. And we will see that we are all truly loved, truly accepted, truly adopted into his family. The things that make you special will be that Jesus sees you as special and lovely. It won't be that your, your family or your culture or your brother or your sister your mother, your father have something that they really like about you that makes you stand out from the rest. The thing that will resonate with you most is that when Jesus was paying for your sins, he was thinking of you and he died to bring you into a relationship with him. And so when you were there and when you see him face to face, you can know that it's not an accident. That he was there planning, thinking, I want you. I want you to know me. I want you to enjoy me. I want you to be with me. That is better than any other thing that you could that you could experience. Any other thing. Peter here, he wants his hearers, you and I, to understand that this identity, being a chosen race, a royal priesthood, is foundational. So much so that he even goes back into the Old Testament to pull out these scriptures for his New Testament hearers. He cites this language. He alludes to an Old Testament text in, of course, Exodus 19, verse 6. This is what the Lord has told the people of Israel. At Mount Sinai, after he's rescued them, he says this, You shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So this is what God has told Moses to communicate. You shall be to me a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. Now at Mount Sinai, God is entering into a covenant with this group of people, Israel, who he has rescued. And what God does there at Mount Sinai you know, we've studied through this book. He gives laws so that they might rightly represent him to the other nations. They might live in such a way that they are different than the other nations and that they would worship him and know him and enjoy him, but that they would live in such a way that the other nations saw who God's character is and then wanted to enter into a relationship with the Lord. And this is what they're being told here. You are going to be this, this kingdom of priests, this holy nation. Now, we know, because it took forever for Israel to enter into the promised land, that basically, like, they just blew it. Like, right away, like, they already failed. As soon as they got, like, the Ten Commandments, like, Moses couldn't even come down off, like, the mountain with, like, the first set. They, like, had already, like, crushed it, making, like, a, you know, golden calf and doing all sorts of stupid stuff already. Like, they're just horrible. They couldn't even last a couple days. They failed. And because of this, they were led out into exile two times in Assyria. And then they were also exiled into, uh, you know, they were held captive in Babylon. This happened because they failed to keep God's law. They failed to do what God told them to do. 
But they were to be, we're told here, in a, a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Now, Peter comes back around and he says this, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. His declaration to Christians is this, you are a royal priesthood. Now, for us, we read over that and we're like, yeah, that sounds fancy. Like, great. <laughs> like, cool. Like, you know, like we're spiritual people who are like special. Like, that's probably what it means. Right? But if you recall, one, having, being a royal priesthood, that was like an incompatible thing. Because in the, in the uh, way that God set up the governance of Israel, it was this. That there could be a class of people who were kings there could be priests, but you couldn't be both. You couldn't be the priest and the king. Saul tried it, and he ended up, you know, screwing it up and ended up getting in trouble and having to have consequences as a result of his uh, foolishness. Trying to, he was the king, but then trying to come in and act as a priest. And there had been only one priest before who was also a king, we find in the book of Genesis this guy called Melchizedek, who Abraham kind of runs, in on, runs into him on the way. This is, pre, this is pre-Moses, pre the institution of the law in Mount Sinai. And so there is this, this priesthood, there's, there's one person who holds this office, Melchizedek. But later we see that Jesus is the one who also holds this. So when we become, when Jesus is the king and he's also the priest, and it says that we are, we are a royal priesthood, this means we come from his line, that we are a part of his family, that we are adopted and accepted into his uh, royal lineage, but yet we serve as ministers Priests, these ministers of reconciliation, who operate in such a way that then relate to the, to the outside world, much as though Israel was supposed to relate to the outside world, to point to Christ. We now operate as these royal priests. It is Jesus, who is the king and priest, who has brought these two roles together for us, so we could serve in this capacity. And so it's our job to take these blessings that we've received and then to operate in the world and to mediate these things between God and, and the world and to bring them into relationship with Christ by showing the truth of the gospel, by putting Christ on display. And so this group of people, the royal, royal priesthood, the holy nation, were called to reflect the character of God. Beyond that, Peter goes on and he says, we are a people who are called for his own, or a people for his own possession. We are a people who are belonging to God. A people who belong, therefore, to God.
This also finds its meaning. It's likely that Peter also here was referencing back to uh, Exodus 19, this covenant at Sinai. In the verse before, verse 6, verse 5, uh, we read Exodus 19. Now, therefore, this is the Lord speaking, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, obedience, obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. You shall be my treasured possession among all the peoples. Later, Paul spoke similarly in Titus chapter 2, verse 14. He said that Christ gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify it for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Again, we find this idea of a chosen race, election, that God has, God has seen our state, that we were in need, and yet paid for our sins so that we might be his people, that we might be rescued, that we might belong to him and know him. You know, when, when the children of Israel were in bondage, when they were in trouble, when they were in Egypt and they were crying out to the Lord, they were there enslaved for 400 plus years. And when the Lord sent a deliverer, when he sent Moses, Moses was to go to the Pharaoh and tell him that, Pharaoh ought to let God's people go so that they might worship him and serve him in the wilderness. You see, God had come with a purpose. He had come to give them freedom so that they might be free to know and enjoy him in worship. They weren't given freedom to go out and to destroy themselves with their own foolishness, their own selfish desires. But they were rescued, freed. They were even, it was even spoken to uh, the secular world, to Pharaoh, that these people needed to be freed so that they could go and worship. They could go and experience all that God had for them. It was for a purpose. It wasn't freed for their own uh, desires, but it was freed from slavery so that they could go and worship. Now, as we think about that, as you dive in a little bit deeper, you know, it, it, we can kind of start to go down a path where we, uh, you know, really end up echoing back the same thoughts that are found in the uh, Genesis chapter 3. As we hear, oh, God wanted to free these people so that they could go out and they could worship him. We hear all of a sudden in the back of our minds, Satan start to creep in and say, well, like, how come God doesn't want you to have that? How come God doesn't want you to have the freedom to have whatever you want? How come, how come you, can't, you, can't, you can't eat this one thing? 
We, we start to think and believe the lies that come in where we say, well, if God wanted to free them, how come he didn't just free them and not require them to worship him? How come he couldn't just free them and, and let them go on their own? We start to come with these, and, and these questions are fine to ask. But it's what we do with them. See, the reason that God didn't let, that God told Adam and Eve not to eat that fruit in the garden was because he knew that they would flourish most, that they would experience the greatest joy and fullness of life by abstaining from it, by not participating in it, that they would be experiencing all that God had for them by not participating in that. Even so, that when the Lord rescues the children of Israel out of Egypt, he rescues them to bring them into a life of worship because he knows that he is the deepest desire that they have. He is the deepest desire that all of us have. The thing that we are ultimately longing after. The thing that we ultimately need. The thing that we ultimately want. And he knows that if we go outside of him, if we go and do something else, then we're going to experience pain and hurt and hardship. We're going to experience disease and death. That we're going to experience difficulties that have no answer. But with Christ and coming into being freed from slavery and being directed into worship, we are being given all that we want all that we need because we're created to be a people who worship. It's just a matter of what we're worshiping. We're worshiping ourselves. We're worshiping uh, other creation. We're worshiping the Lord. Everyone is serving something else. Choose your master wisely. This group of people, they belong to God. They are people for his own possession. This means that if you and I are Christians, we are people for his purposes, not for our own. This is why Jesus says, deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. This isn't, he doesn't mean like, well, demote your priorities to like number two. He says like, you don't have priorities anymore. They're dead. There's nothing that you could want the things that you want, they're just going to hurt you. But you pursue the things that he wants for you, that he wants to give you. And they always lead to life, to flourishing, to joy. Think about it. The times in your life when you've been really sad, really hard, have hard circumstances, difficulties, most of the time it's because you made a dumb choice that was not in line with you know, the scriptures. You put yourself in a position where you thought you knew better than other people. That you went against what God wanted you to do. That's just how it works. When you follow the Lord, it doesn't mean it's not going to be hard, but it means that in the midst of that hardship, there will be opportunities for rest, for joy, 
But then you say, oh, well, I, I did the hard, I did the thing. I, I did what God wanted me to do, and it was still hard, and I didn't have the joy. It's like, well, were you with God's people? Were you reading your Bible every day? The places where God wants to give you joy? The places where God wants to feed you? If you're, if you're saying you're going to follow the Lord, you're going to do what he wants, and you made the choice that is hard and went against the thing that you really wanted to do, but then you cut off the ways that he's going to speak to you, you're still not doing it. You need to have opened the channel to let him speak to you. You need to open the way for God to, to get to your heart. He's there ready to communicate to you. But you've got to open the door and let him in. He's not going to kick it down and say, oh, you're the worst. He'll keep chasing after you. He'll kick it down in that sense. But he's, he's not going to force himself. He's not going force, to force you to hear him. But he will be persistent. Now we come to the purpose of this people. Something we've touched on briefly already. The purpose of this people is explained. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. This is the description that we find, the purpose of the people of God is that we would be a worshiping people. A worshiping people. That's what we are, primarily. A worshiping people. To declare His excellencies. We, we might say, oh, you know, well, aren't we also, like, you know, to be an evangelizing people? Yes. All evangelizing is worshiping because you're sharing who, what God has done. But evangelizing in itself is not the, the goal because when you get to heaven, there's nobody to evangelize. Everybody's there. Like you're, it's like, okay, like everybody knows Jesus. Everybody's here. Like that's going to go away. But our truest identity is a worshiping people because we will continue to worship. We will continue to enjoy God. You won't continue to evangelize. Hey, Jesus, you care about yourself? You know, like you're pretty amazing. <laughs> it's not going to happen. You're going to try to talk to somebody else. Hey, let me tell you about Jesus. Quiet, I'm worshiping. <laughs> Leave me alone. It's just, there's not going to be a need for that. Everyone's, everyone's there. Everyone sees how amazing Jesus is. Primarily, we are a worshiping people. Peter, here with this, this proclamation of excellencies, he calls back to several passages that we find in the Old Testament. In Isaiah chapter 43, verse 21, the Lord says this, There's a people whom I formed for myself that, that they might declare my praise. God has brought together a people for himself that they might declare his praise. And so God has done this for Israel. But Peter says here, Gentiles who've been grafted in, Gentiles who are part of the family of God. Now the church is the one who has been established to praise God for what he has done, for who he is, for his character. Isaiah 43, 7, everyone who is called by my name, 
whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. It was God's intention to create us for his glory so that we might worship him, that we might enjoy him, that we might know him uh, so deeply. And it is our job to be heralds, to be proclaimers of God's praises, that we would recognize who he is, what he has done, and be putting forth his praise out into creation. Much as the rest of uh, the created order has, is proclaiming God's praises, the heavens declare the glory of God, the psalmist tells us. Jesus explaining to uh, you know, these religious folks on the way into his triumphal entry that if the people were not declaring his praises, that the creation, the trees and the rocks and all the things there would, would break forth into praise. that they would come to communicate all that Christ is. And so it is our job. We proclaim God's praises. He has called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. This speaks here just simply to our conversion, that we were dead in our trespasses, that we were in darkness, but he has brought us into the light. Paul speaks similarly in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6. For God who said, let the light shine out of darkness, let there be light. Genesis chapter 1, God creating new life, bringing forth new life, just as God has said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Christ has come and indwelt us. The Holy Spirit, they're shining in our hearts. And it is Christians then who declare the works of God. It is our job to recognize his work, all that he has accomplished, creation, the plan of salvation, his perfect life, his death, his resurrection, his exaltation, his return. We declare, we worship the Lord for all that he has accomplished, for all that he is, being perfect love, perfect justice, the many facets of God's character, unchanging in nature, faithful. We look at the things around us and we see the ways that God has sustained us, is at work in the world, and we declare his praises. Because the truth of the gospel applies to all things, we have opportunity to praise him in all things. The statement that Jesus is Lord is truth can be applied to anything. Jesus is Lord over your health, 
over your time, over your choices. Jesus is Lord over all things. And so therefore we can then in turn respond with thanksgiving. The alternative we say like, I don't want you to be Lord over that. Like, I don't want to have that one. Instead, what we ought to do is say like, you should be Lord over that because you have a better plan than I do. You have a better grasp on this than I do because you're my creator, because you've died for me, because you've proven yourself faithful again and again. You are Lord over these things because you have been raised from the dead, never to die again. You are Lord. And so this proclamation of excellencies that we are called to participate in, being a worshiping people, it's based on what God has done for us and how we relate to him and who he is. In Colossians chapter 1, verse 13, uh, Paul puts it this way. He explains simply that he has delivered us, that is Christ, has delivered us from the domain of darkness. There again, there's darkness. And transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. We have to respond to what he has accomplished on our behalf. Now we come to verse 10 and we see Peter's emphasis in chapter 2. He digs a little bit deeper and he pulls us further into the narrative of Israel's history. Uh, He alludes to the words of Hosea. Uh, In Hosea chapter 2, verse 23, he says, Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Peter references this story of Hosea, where Israel is, is being rejected as God's people because of their sin. But in Hosea, God uses this analogy and, uh, and he pledges to have mercy upon Israel and, and to form them again as his people. Hosea chapter 2, verse 23, I will sow her for myself in the land and I, will have, and I will have mercy on no mercy. And I will say to not my people, you are my people. And he shall say, you are my God. Like, that's how hardcore Hosea got. That God took the nation of Israel, and he's like, I'm changing your name. You guys are called not my people. (laughs) Not my people. He's like, I'm going to call you guys no mercy. No mercy and not my people. He just straight up categorized them. Boom, done. No mercy, not my people. Then he says this, but I will reform you as my people. And I will say to not my people, you are my people. And he shall say, you are my God. Peter says, this is how, the, how Christians are. That we were once not God's people. That we were far from him. That we were dead in our trespasses. That we, were, that we had not received mercy. But now we have received this mercy. We were outside of God's favor, that we were already under judgment, that we were rejected. But now, we are being called 
God's people. Once we were not a people, but now we are God's people. This uh, would have been super encouraging for Peter's hearers. We read over it real quick because we're like, oh yeah, that seems great. Like you just went from one status to another. But essentially what's happening here is this term, God's people, or, or being the people of God, was a term that was strictly reserved for Israel. Right? This is why they like, rejoice over the other nations and we're like, oh, like, we're God's people. We belong to him. Like, it was something that they bragged about. That they were very uh, boastful in. But here Peter throws it around and he says, you guys are God's people. You belong to him. I'm giving you the same status, the same classification as Israel. He's telling them, you have been elected. You've been chosen. You are the people of God. You're the recipients of God's mercy. In Romans chapter 9, verse 25, Paul goes back to this same chapter in Hosea. He cites it again. Uh, a little bit differently, he adds on also. Romans chapter 9, verse uh, 25, 26. And this is kind of kicking off an area where he begins to talk about the church uh, being, and the Gentiles being grafted in, and the church being representative of this new Israel. He, he, he uh, pulls out this argument for three chapters, but as he begins, he says this, as it, indeed he says in Hosea, those who were not my people, I will call my people. And her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. You see, Paul understood this to be the truth, that once we were far from him, but now we are being brought in to have the same uh, responsibilities, we have the same uh, blessings that Israel has. And so for Christians upon the earth who are dealing with hardship and difficulty and trying to get through life, wondering, uh, you know, where are we at? How do we find hope and security? This gives comfort. Comfort to us that we know that we belong. If you're a suffering and rejected people, it's, it's you know, nice to see that although you might be rejected here upon earth and although people might be upset with you or, or having a hard time with you, you can know that you have heavenly father you can know that you are accepted and adopted into the family of god peter writes this in such a way so as to bring total inclusion he uses all terms that are 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 primarily reserved for israel ways that would have been that israel would have been spoken about a chosen race a holy nation a people for his own possession, the people of God. And he brings these into into application on people who identify with Christ and therefore most deeply treasure Christ. He says, if you're a Christian, these terms belong to you. If you're a Christian, that means that you're truly pursuing Christ. That you're wanting to know him and enjoy him and treasure him deeply. If we are this people of God, 
if we are this chosen race, this royal priesthood, this holy nation, if we're his own special people, a people for his own possession, then this means that we have to fulfill the calling upon our lives to, to be a worshiping people, to declare his excellencies, to proclaim them. This means that it requires a change in our lives. That we ought to live in such a way that as Israel was supposed to reflect God's character to the outside culture, that Christians, corporately, worldwide, corporately as a church in Berkeley, and individually, we ought to live in such a way where our lives are looking like Christ and reflecting back to Jesus. This happens, this happens, you are able to do this, you are able to accomplish this when you care about the things that Jesus cares about. When you treasure him, when you pursue him. If you were interested in Jesus, you're naturally going to enjoy the things that he enjoys. If you're interested in if you're interested in spending time with him and getting to know Jesus, you're naturally going to start to like and enjoy the things that, that he, he is wanting to pursue. If Jesus is interested in, in saving people, you're going to be interested in saving people. If Jesus is interested in knowing everyone, you're going to be interested in helping people know him. You want to make connections. You want to put him on display. You can't operate as this royal priesthood. You can't operate in this way if you're not treasuring him. It's our job primarily to worship. These other things flow out of this worship. This is the supreme uh, character this is the supreme marker of all Christians that we worship. That's it. Not that you're kind, not that you're nice, not that you are more patient, but it's that you worship. You worship Christ. Now, of course, we don't just mean like in song, you know, that's why we more are about responding to Christ because we respond with lives of worship, not just respond through song. But we want to treasure Christ in the ways that we live and make our decision, the ways that show other people that Jesus is Lord are ways in which we are worshiping. That's, it's simply that, it, that's simply it. You want to do something or make a decision, and instead of saying, here's what I want to do, you say, Jesus is Lord. What does he want to do? That's an act of worship. In submission to him and saying, I'm going to do what he has asked me to do, what he has called me to do, where he has called me to go, how he has called me to live. And so we worship him for all that he is. We worship him because he's brought us into being so that we might praise him so that we might give him glory. He's called us out of darkness, 
brought us into his marvelous light. And he's rescued us. We're here to know him and to enjoy him and to simply just help other people other people have abundant life. To point them in the right direction to Christ. That's it. Simple. So as we come into uh, you know, this next year, as we look at entering our seventh year as a church, there's no room to deviate from what we have going on with those two verses we shared earlier. 1 Corinthians 3.11 No other foundation can be laid than that which is Jesus Christ. You know, and that when Christ is lifted up, he will draw all men to himself. He's got it handled. We're just there to respond, to build on the foundation of Christ, to see him lifted up, and to worship. He's going to draw all men to himself. When he's lifted up, that doesn't mean like you should be like, oh, yeah, like they, that's like kind of cool. This is interesting. Like, let me find something to do. You know, let me figure out like, oh, let me get like a different angle. Like, no, like he's there. He's already lifted up. It's time to worship. That's what he's there for. When everybody else sees, sees us worshiping, then they'll see that he, his worth, all that he's done, all that he's accomplished, he will draw them into himself. It's your job just to worship. And so let's work, uh, let's work together to reflect God's character to each other, to the community, to the nations, to give him glory in all, all that we do. Lord, we are thankful for your kindness, for your love toward us. We pray that you would um, work in our hearts now as we respond. Lord, call us, um, call us to worship. We pray that you would uh, you'd help us to see you rightly. Lord, we want to get out of our own our own heads. We want to get out of our own way, and interact with you um, to give you all glory and honor and praise as the creator of all things. As the the redeemer of our souls. Lord, we need you um, to work in us. And so, Lord, would you um, change us, transform us, Lord, move us to a place where we are seeing you rightly, where the cares of this world are passing away. Lord, not just because we're forgetting about them, but because we recognize that you are Lord, that you're Lord even of those things, of our anxieties, our worries, our fears. And so, Lord, we want to we worship you in spirit and in truth. And so, Lord, inhabit the praises of your people now as we respond. We love you. Amen.